All right. Well, we're going to continue working through the New Testament book of Acts this morning. So last week we found uh, an individual named, or two individuals named Paul and Barnabas, who are going to be kind of primary characters moving forward here in Acts. Uh, They were chased out of a city named Pisidian Antioch because the Jewish leaders in that city didn't like the sway that they were having amongst the Jewish people. So the gospel was drawing people to the extent that basically the whole city of Pisidian Antioch came to listen to Paul and Barnabas in the Jewish synagogue. And ultimately, Paul and Barnabas, what, what they did in that city is it says that they shook the dust off their feet, which is another way of saying, I've done everything that I can, and I take no responsibility for how you're responding to this. So they shake the dust off their feet and then they move on to a city named Iconium. And this kind of becomes their mode of operation. They go to a city, they preach the gospel, they set leaders in place, they have their lives threatened, and then they move on to a new city to preach the gospel again. And so this morning we find them in the city of Iconium. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 14. So if you have a Bible or device, uh, you can turn there. We're going to look at this section in, or this chunk this morning in two different sections. So I'm going to read the first seven verses here for us. Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained there, or so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So last week we read about how the Jewish people were rejecting Paul and Barnabas. And so Paul had said, All right, I'm going to go to the Gentiles with the gospel. That's who I'm going to focus on with the good news of Jesus. But notice here where he goes upon his arrival in Iconium, right after saying he's going to go to the Gentiles. It says that he entered into the Jewish synagogue. Now, interestingly, in that Jewish place of worship, we find that there is both Jewish people and Gentile people. But Paul ultimately knows that his arrival at the Jewish synagogue is going to eventually lead him into interactions with Gentiles as well. He's kind of understood what's going to happen. He's going to go to the Jewish people, and they're going to reject him, and then he's going to go to Gentile people. And so, but this has been his pattern, and will be his pattern at other times as well, that he's going to start at a Jewish synagogue. 
But what's more intriguing here is the response of the people. It says that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So many people believed. The gospel was good news to many people. However, there's still plenty of other people who are opposed to the message about Jesus. And so it says here that unbelieving Jews sought to poison the minds of the Gentiles. And what we find then here in Iconium is that this conflict continued to escalate to the point that Paul and Barnabas were threatened with death. And so they then choose to flee to neighboring towns, to Lystra and to Derby. So last week we talked about how the gospel elicited a response. When some people heard the gospel, they rejected it. And other people would hear the same gospel and they would rejoice at the news. And this week we're seeing a very similar concept. The message of grace, which is the foundation of Jesus' message, divides people. Many people believe the good news of Jesus. And many people disbelieved the good news of Jesus and sought to harm those who were believing it. Maybe you felt similarly similarly to how I felt at times during my life. When I think about talking about the gospel with other people, I thought if people were just more gentle in the way that they talked about Jesus, then people would believe. Now, a disclaimer, I think that there are plenty of so-called professing Christians who could use a course in gentleness and how they talk about Jesus. But there is this reality that we oftentimes think, and maybe I just speak for myself, that I've oftentimes thought if people were better at explaining Jesus, if people were better apologists, better at giving a reason for Jesus, if people just understood Jesus better, if they knew the right time to talk to others about Jesus, then they'd be more receptive to Jesus. And as much as we should seek to be gentle and thoughtful in how and when we talk to others about Jesus, there's no, real, or there's no avoiding a, this reality, that the grace of Jesus is going to offend people. It's going to divide people. People are going to hate Jesus. And the reason that we know this is because Jesus himself said that this was going to happen. His message, his grace, was going to divide people. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, this is what Jesus says. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake 
will find it. Okay, this picture of Jesus is maybe not what we oftentimes like to think of. This is not the domesticated Jesus many people like to imagine. At times we get this picture of Jesus that he's not soft. That he came to earth because he had an agenda. He's here for a reason for a reason and so ultimately then to follow Jesus is going to create some uncomfortable realities for his followers in these verses Jesus is making it crystal clear that following him comes at a cost to our family relationships because of our involvement with Jesus church and prioritizing that our family is going to, at times, think less of us. They're going to be offended. They will feel our prioritization of Jesus over them, at least if that's happening in our lives. And they won't like it. Maybe at times they will, but at other times they probably will not like it. Now, this isn't a call for Christians to create fights with their family. Not at all. What this is, is it's a statement about what grace does. When the full beauty of grace hits us, we're going to naturally prioritize something that is that good. If we understand grace for what it is, and we understand how good it really is, then we're going to naturally prioritize that thing which means we're going to deprioritize other things. And this will ultimately divide people. So grace is this beautiful reality. The, the fact that a perfect God-man would choose to sacrificially die so sinners could be forgiven. So that people who were trying to kill him would not be separated from him. Those people who were sinning against God, against Jesus himself, he gives of himself so that they would not go to hell. This is such a good gift. A gift that I think even as we talk about it week after week, we can oftentimes gloss over, not truly feel and understand how good it really is. And yet, despite this being so good, what we find is that grace offends people. As a pastor, I've encountered this in a number of different ways or numerous angles because we preach regularly about grace here. Some have said, essentially, that we as a church are just too soft, that you need to preach more Old Testament, which I think we've preached as many Old Testament books as we have New Testament. But we need to preach more Old Testament, more law. There needs to be more rules. We've got to hear about God's wrath and about God's hatred more. And we fully acknowledge those realities about God. We would affirm God hates sin. But here's the kicker. When someone is critical of us speaking too much, about grace or too highly about grace, too often about grace, what becomes evident is they don't really know how good grace is. 
So what's needed is grace. As much as I might want to preach law in that instance, what's really needed is grace. Some people, they really just want to know what they need to do. They don't so much want to hear what Jesus has done for them and believe in that. They want to know, what do I need to do? Kevin, just tell me, what is it that I need to do? And the reality is that's a pretty offensive thing. When we say week after week, you can't save yourself. You can go and you can make your religious to-do list and you can do all these things and it won't be enough. God won't be impressed. In fact, the Bible even says it's the good things that we need to do that we need to repent of as well because those typically are done in pride. We can't save ourselves. It's not about the things that, that we can or need to do. I was talking with someone recently and they were telling me about a, a conversation with a family member, and, and they were uh, having this conversation about a person that, that they didn't like. And, and this individual was saying that their family member said, well, some people just don't deserve grace. And isn't that true? No one deserves grace. I mean, definitionally, that's what grace is. Undeserved favor. God's kindness, which is never deserved. What Paul and Barnabas are experiencing in Iconium in this story is the division caused by grace. Some people are rejecting it. Others are rejoicing in it. But at the center of all of it is grace. And so because of the upheaval caused by grace, Paul and Barnabas flee Iconium, and they go to some neighboring towns. So let's pick the story up in verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices or sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. 
This is a fascinating story. So this story begins with a focus on this crippled individual. And Luke, the author, tells us that he was listening closely to Paul and Barnabas. He was locked in to what they were saying. And so Paul sees this man. He looks at him and he sees that he's a man who is filled with faith. And so Paul tells him to stand up. And this crippled man then does something that he has never done before in his life. He stands up and he walks. Now, Lystra and Derby, and this is happening in Lystra, but these were smaller towns. So everyone knew this individual. They knew his story. They knew that they had never seen him stand. They had never seen him walk. And so when he did, they freaked out. They lost their minds. Immediately they exclaimed about the divinity of these individuals, being Paul and Barnabas, and, and, and saying basically these aren't mere men, but these are gods that have come down to us. Now, there's a story that's kind of helpful for us in understanding why, why they went here. There was a local legend that had been passed on throughout the years, throughout the generations, that at one time in history, Zeus and Hermes had visited Lystra. And, and what they did is that they went through the town, and they knocked on all the doors of the town, and they were looking for help. But people would open their doors, and, and no one would help them. Eventually, though, they came uh, to an elderly individual who brought them in. Because all these other people would not care for them, would not welcome them in, this, this incited a ton of bitterness within them. And so later on, what they did is they exacted revenge on this town by sending a flood to destroy these people. And all of this because of their unwillingness to help them. And so since that time, there's been this sensitivity to never repeat this misstep towards Zeus and Hermes. They had a temple there. Since this miraculous healing occurs, the residents of Lysa reveal who it is that they esteem and who it is that they are looking for, waiting on. And so the whole city of Lystra begins to shower praise on Paul and Barnabas, thinking that they are these individuals, these gods that they have been waiting for. I want to highlight a distinction here. I want to go back to Acts chapter 12 to, to make this distinction. Acts 12, we read about a story of... Um, an individual named Herod. And we were given a record of how Herod died and, and that it happened because he didn't give God glory. So Herod came in front of people and he gave this speech. And, and those who were listening to the speech listened to it and, and they're like, these are not the words of a man. These are the words of a God. And so they praised Herod and he loved it. And in that moment, he was stealing God's glory, and immediately he died. Today, we see a really stark contrast. As Paul and Barnabas are being hailed as gods, notice what they do. 
They stop the process immediately. They go out into the crowds and they communicate as clearly as possible that they are mere men. They are just like those individuals who are seeking to worship them. They are not special in any way. And they point the people of Lystra to God, the one whom they know is worthy of deserving praise. And so we're given a really clear example for ourselves today as to how we can and should interact with praise. We live in a culture that is rife with chest-thumping and trash-talking. Now, the Bible isn't against us having fun, but the Bible is really clear that we should not seek the praise of man. God is the one who deserves praise. So, so even if our work or our friends encourage this, like maybe we cook a really good meal, it's okay to, for people to say, hey, thanks for that. that, that's great. But if we begin to think that we're the really special one, if we don't understand, like, these gifts are coming ultimately from God, and this could be a lot of different things. This could be preaching a really good sermon, right? This could be hitting a game-winning shot. This could be accomplishing anything in life. What we need to understand is the point is Jesus, always, that as we might receive praise, that we would direct that elsewhere. We would remind ourselves repeatedly, it's not about us. It's about Jesus. And so Paul and Barnabas tell the inhabitants of Lystra to stop offering sacrifices. Don't do that. And they named this as a vain activity. This is a good word for us. When we think life is about offering sacrifices to God. And, and yes, there's a call in Scripture for us to do this, to lay our lives down for God. But it's not so that we would earn something from God. It's because Jesus has already earned it for us. And it's a response to that. So instead, Paul and Barnabas instruct these individuals to turn to the living God. Turn to Him. Be amazed at what He's done. And, and what they do then is they point them to creation. They say, look at the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now I want to highlight one aspect of Paul's approach that I think is helpful for us as we consider our own interaction with people who don't trust Jesus. But before I do that, I want to provide the basis of our core value of mission. So we have three core values, gospel, community, mission, right? And one of those is mission. So the basis of everything that we do at Center Church is the gospel, the good news about Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. And so we want people, ourselves included, to increasing, increasingly believe in Jesus, to understand that salvation comes from him, that we don't contribute to it, we don't manufacture it. Salvation comes from Jesus. So we want to stir a longing for him. Now, the gospel is not just educational facts, okay? It's not just information. It's news. And what do we do with good news? We share good news. 
So then the gospel compels mission. Mission is essentially just sharing Jesus. So the gospel is intended to move us to share good news with others. And this is what Paul and Barnabas are doing. It says, or they say to those in Lystra, we bring you good news. And good news is essentially Jesus. Their message, their argument is for Jesus. It's about Jesus. That doesn't change. But I want to highlight their distinctive approach in this instance. As Paul has interacted with people, he goes to cities, right? And where does he go? He goes to a Jewish synagogue. As he interacts with those people, you'll notice how he'll begin quoting the Old Testament to Jewish people. The reason he does this is because they understand that. The Old Testament was authoritative to them. But note, that's not what Paul does here. He doesn't start quoting the Bible. He speaks about nature and about creation. God and his glory are still the ultimate message. That's still the aim. But the route Paul is taking to get there is a bit different. It's contextualized to these people. Their belief system is around pagan gods. It's around mythology. These beings were thought to interact with humanity through nature. And so Paul comes to them through a way in which they'll understand. Paul has an understanding as to what is meaningful to these people. He's listened closely to what they value, what's important to them. And he then points to ways in which they've experienced God's grace. Not God's saving grace, which is Jesus on the cross, but God's common grace. Common grace means everyone experiences this grace. So God's goodness, his common grace, is seen and experienced through the rain that falls on the land. And then the fruitfulness, the food that comes from the rain falling down. And Paul also talks about gladness as well. There are many things in life that can make us glad. All of these everyday realities are reasons for us for the Lystrians, Lystrians, I don't know how you say that, for them to sing about the grace of God. These are things that are intended then to point them to the grace of Jesus. And there's a push then in here for us as we consider our neighbors and our coworkers, our friends and family, to speak the good news of Jesus in such a way that is meaningful to them that is sensible to them, that is good to others. In order for us to do that, though, we need to know people. We need to know what drives people. We need to know what they care about. We need to know who it is and what it is that they praise. And then from there, we can help connect dots so they can see how under all of these things is Jesus and how over all these things is Jesus and his grace. But first, we have to listen, to learn, and to understand. And as we listen and as we learn and then as we share and try to connect dots to get to Jesus and his grace, 
These are investments, and we've got to understand that these investments might not turn out the way we want them to turn out, at least initially. Grace might still offend people. They might still not like it. But that's not a loss. That's not failure. The Bible talks about how we sow seeds. So we sow seeds of grace, and we pray that those seeds would grow into something that we can't manufacture on our own. But we're responsible for planting the seeds. Okay, so we end our sermons here at Center Church with gospel application. Right? We, when we walk out of here, we want to be thinking about this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has done for us. The Christian life is about Jesus, not ultimately about us. So we want to remind ourselves of truth about Jesus. We want to remind ourselves about how he has revealed himself to us, how he has communicated certain things to us. So two points of gospel application for us this morning. First of all, a warning about freedom and about God's wrath. So I stated earlier about how we're willing to talk about hard things. We're not going to shy away from that. This is why we preach through books of the Bible, because we're going to have to engage with the tougher parts of Scripture. So in Paul's sermon that he was, he was giving, in verse 16, it talked there about how God allows nations to walk in their own ways. He allows nations to walk in their own ways. Another way that you could, you could kind of say this is that God allows people to do what's right in their own eyes. This is what I think is good. This is what I think is right. And God allows it. Romans 1 talks about this same concept. But he talk, it talks about it in a really terrifying way. Roman 1, Romans 1 talks about God's wrath being seen in God giving people what they want. God's wrath being seen in God, in God giving people what they want. If we think that we're so smart, we're so worthy of praise, we're so committed to this thing, God says, enjoy. And this is really terrifying. And the reason this is terrifying is because what we might justify away as God's approval is wrath. And what we find in our culture today, and probably in our own lives as well, is that many people will trumpet individual freedoms in society or in cultural settings. But the Bible teaches that freedom is found in submission to Jesus. That's where freedom is found. Freedom isn't likely to be flaunted. Freedom will look like praising Jesus. So if you find yourself thinking about this and you're thinking about this certain thing in culture or these people in your life, I would say pump the brakes on that. Like we want to apply this to our own hearts first and foremost. What are the ways you, in your own heart, seek to find freedom, seek to create a form of freedom that ultimately results 
in you praising yourself or you orienting your life around you rather than Jesus. So that's my push in this. We all want freedom. There's no one here who doesn't want to experience freedom. But we want to ensure that that freedom is leading to us making much of Jesus. Not to us making much of ourselves. Because that so-called freedom will actually lead to slavery. Okay, secondly then. Reminders of grace are all around us. They're everywhere. And this is really an encouragement for us to see it and to share it with others. When we eat a really good meal, there are reminders in there for us of God's grace, of his kindness to us. When we hear a funny joke and we laugh from our belly, like this is a reminder of God's kindness. This can be seen in so many different ways in our lives. Grace is all around us. We likely, likely need to just slow down to simplify our lives to be able to see it, to appreciate it. But, but it's there. James 1.17 talks about how every good gift comes from God. And every good gift is a reminder of God's undeserved kindness. We all can admit that this world is swarming with darkness and with brokenness. It's everywhere. Hard realities are everywhere. Suffering is rampant. And yet, grace is so good that it persists in the midst of all the brokenness and all the darkness that is rampant in this world. But let's not forget the pinnacle of grace. The pinnacle of grace is forgiveness of sins. All lesser forms of grace are pointing to and supporting this ultimate form of grace. So this is a call for us in the good things in your life to be stirred to see and to praise Jesus in all of the mundane realities, the smirks, the chuckles, the good feelings, the good tastes, the beauty all around us, to let that remind you of Jesus' ultimate grace. And then in that, as you see that, you experience that, to let your affection be stirred in such a way that you would boldly share grace with others. You experiencing grace is undeserved. So if you feel like there are people in your life who don't deserve grace, you can just remind yourself you're in that spot with Jesus. Boldly share grace with others. Not worried about them reacting in the way you want them to react. Not doing it based on, well, I think they will respond positively. Don't withhold grace. Share undeserved kindness because this is what has been shared with us.